0: In Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, fairly familiar verse to many of you, it says, They that pollute the sanctuary of strength and take away the daily sacrifice, they shall place the abomination that makes desolate in it. But such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupted by flatteries, but the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That last phrase is the one that's most familiar to us. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Uh, Now, I'm not interested in our time together to try to unpack all the different points of view about end-time prophecy. Obviously, this has a historical fulfillment that took place uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes. It also then has another fulfillment which the Lord Jesus spoke of and pointed to in Matthew 24 when he prophesied the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Both of those events, these verses match them. But then I believe there is a third fulfillment of this yet to be unfolded which is, again, not a subject that I want to pursue right now because my point is is this. Whether you believe in pre, mid, post, whatever, the bottom line is every generation has to face its own particular brand of struggle that this verse addresses. They will pollute the sanctuary of strength. They will take away the daily sacrifices. They will place the abomination that makes desolate And they will do wickedly against the covenant by speaking corrupting flatteries. But those who know their God shall be strong. I I want to spend time together today talking about strength to face dark times and maybe the end times that only comes from knowing God, strength from knowing God. Now, there's four issues here that are listed that that I want us to just briefly take a look at. Number one, there's political seduction that's spoken of in this verse. Number two, there's international turmoil. Number three, there's spiritual deception. And number four, there's moral bankruptcy. Every one of these, any one of these, drains the life out of us. If we're godly, if we love the Lord, if we love the truth, if we love our families, if we love freedom, if we love uh, life, then political seduction, international turmoil, spiritual deception, and moral bankruptcy, any one of those things drain us of life and energy. But all four of them at one time are just about too much to to deal with. Uh, when it speaks of the pollution of the sanctuary and the destruction of the, uh, this translation speaks of the sanctuary of strength. Uh, one translation calls it the citadel, which is talking about the temple and the walls around the temple. But I, I want to address not just uh, not the, the the temple. I want to talk about the the polluting of the of that which is holy, and how that drains strength out of us. Then I want to talk about the destroying of the daily sacrifice, what that might represent that drains strength out of us. Putting evil in place of the holy, letting the unholy stand in the holy place, how that drains life out of us and being corrupted by flatteries. What does that do to us? And then finally the ultimate uh, result of all this, the destruction of the covenant and what that does to us. Um, The pollution of the sanctuary of strength, how would that apply to me and you? I mean, we may never face anything in our generation on the level of what Israel faced at the invasion of Titus and the destruction of the temple. If you interpret that event as being what Jesus was talking about when he said uh, there'll be a time of tribulation unlike any that's ever been before and will never be again, then you certainly don't believe that there's going to be another time when you have to confront this. But for, let's let's forget whether we're going to have a tribulation period or not, or whether it's already come to pass and was taken care of at 70 A.D. It doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take a prophet. It doesn't take a, a person with a Ph.D. in political science to, to look around and see that in our own little feeble way, we are facing perilous times, And Scripture does make it plain that we're going to face perilous times uh, in the end of the age, regardless of what your prophecy charts uh, hold to. We've all got to agree that the Scripture is plain about that in 2 Timothy 3. Know this, that in the last days, dangerous, perilous, demonically inspired, ferocious times will come. Jesus says men's hearts will fail them from fear of looking after those things that are coming on the earth. So with that in mind, I want us to look at Daniel 11, 31 and 32 and consider what you and I are facing. Uh, maybe I don't have to face the Romans tearing my life down uh, one stone not left on top of another. Maybe I don't have to face that, but what am I facing? I'm facing the pollution of the sanctuary from which I should have gotten my strength. This to me speaks of the pollution of the worship of God and the Word of God. Uh, I say this with all respect to those many, many leaders out there who are always trying to do the right thing and always trying to speak the truth and not compromise. But uh, I hear from people all across the, the country who say the same thing that I do. There's a weariness in the hearts of many people who go in hopes of being in the presence of the Lord in hearing a, a word fresh from God that was birthed in prayer that was brought forth in humility and that was uh, uh, forged in the fires of the Holy Spirit and they don't get they don't get it very much they don't hear it very much um uh, the most powerful move of the Holy Spirit that I've been able to participate in lately was in a school um uh, uh, chapel program a few weeks ago where I was asked to speak, but I didn't get to speak because the Holy Spirit came, and we were all on the floor for the duration of the time it was It was marvelous nobody spoke, but you know when when I do go to hear someone speak quite often. And here again, they people could say this about me if they come hear me speak. I don't know. I'm not. I, I try not to be critical. But there's a hunger for the real power and presence of God, and I think the reason that the word is weak is because the worship is weak. the The power, the strength of the sanctuary has been polluted. Now, this is too large a subject to try to address in in detail and i want to i want to be i try to be careful when i talk about this uh, i mean ultimately nobody can judge but God himself whose heart is pure and their worship uh, and and so forth and i'm not addressing styles i believe the holy spirit blesses all kinds of styles But to be honest, and I hear a lot of different styles in a lot of different places, very few places I get to go do I sense a true spirit of worship. It's more of a performance. And uh, we're all on uh, American Idol. And we're all trying to perform. I I know that we've all got mixtures in our character. I certainly do. And I'm, I'm not trying to you know, I'm not trying to be harsh, but the strength that is drained out of me when I have to sit through a worship service where the name of the Lord Jesus has not even been mentioned hardly, the song lyrics don't make any sense. They're At best, they're bad poetry, and at worst, they're bad theology. And And the music is so loud, it hurts my ears. And I see little children standing around me whose little ears are sensitive, more sensitive to that, and they're holding, they're literally holding their hands over their ears uh, to try to protect their hearing. Folks, that's stupid. It, there's, that's just stupid that we would allow that kind of worldly indifference to common sense to pollute the sanctuary And drain us of strength. But it certainly does drain us of strength. I'm not just talking about emotional letdown. I'm talking about the uh, cutting off of the flow of divine energy that God would want to impart to us in the hearing of the word and the worship of his name. The second one, destroy the daily sacrifice. What could that possibly represent to us? Well, another thing that's draining us of strength... Is the the I would interpret the destruction of the daily sacrifice as the loss of a self-sacrificial heart among God's people. Uh, I think of John Kennedy's famous words: "Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do to serve your brothers and sisters." Very few people anymore are willing to lay their lives down and serve. Uh, And it's draining strength out of us. Uh, I won't, again, try to delineate examples. If this speaks to you of some issue in your own life, then let the Holy Spirit talk to you about it. But I'm just observing the life of people that I relate to in in various places where I go, and here in in, uh, my own local area. And there's very little support of people by people. Uh, Everybody's busy. So the daily sacrifice has been destroyed, and it's leaving us devoid of strength. Number three, putting evil in the place of the holy putting evil in the place of the holy. Now, this is not so much addressing the church, although, sadly, that does happen sometimes. But it drains us of strength when we are constantly vexed by a culture that is increasingly blasphemous and rejoices in blasphemy. Uh, We just came through the Halloween period, where this is brought to to bear even more than normal when you see people wearing nun outfits and they are, uh, have a pillow under the under the habit uh, to make the you know the nun is pregnant, and there are some with uh, male gender priests that are even more vulgar. And I won't even describe them. I don't think you need me to explain what I'm talking about. Uh, this kind of arrogant vulgarity. Has increased and increased in our culture, and of course it's okay to blaspheme the name of the Lord and uh, make God's people look like fools. Uh, but anybody else, uh, we would hear the human cry of uh, intolerance and uh, all the rest of it. But it drains us of energy, doesn't it? Makes us just lose lose strength. Then the next phrase: corrupted by flattery. I would interpret this as the loss of any respect for truth. That's literally what the word flattery here uh, is referring to, that uh, the the corruption, the seduction of those who are turning away from the living God and being sucked into a vortex of deception uh, are being seduced by spin doctors. And don't you get exhausted trying to listen to uh, some news report, and, and you know that every other word is manipulated and designed for an effect. It's not meant to communicate truth. It's meant to manipulate uh, and uh, misrepresent. All this works for the ultimate conclusion of the destruction of the covenant, the destruction of the covenant means the the, the, the total rejection of reality. Uh, Isaiah chapter 24 speaks to this, and I'll, I'll refer to this uh, more maybe later. But in Isaiah 24 verse 5, it says, The earth is defiled under the inhabitants of the land because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. If you have a chance, please read Leviticus chapter 18, especially verses 20 through 28, if you want more commentary on what this is referring to. But the, the phrase there, changed the ordinance and broken the everlasting covenant, doesn't just mean they've changed a few rules and regulations. It's talking about a complete rebellion against revealed reality. Uh, we're going to, we're, we're going to declare that men are not men, and women are not women, and marriage is not marriage, and parenting is not parenting. We're going to redefine the entire structure of of created reality. We're going to create it all in our own image and likeness according to our own whims and our own demonically in in informed uh, imagination. Now, all of God's dealings with mankind are based on covenant. The changing of the ordinance breaks the everlasting covenant. Why? Why does God relate to man as uh, uh, in covenant? What is covenant? Well, covenant is a relationship. With clearly defined boundaries, so there is no mistake about what is expected of the relationship. God never relates to us apart from covenant because of who he is and because of who we are not. He is holy. He is pure. He is true. We are not. And and so this kind of relationship bond is sealed in blood. Covenant is not a contract. Covenant is far stronger than that. And it's sealed in blood. There is no covenant without a sacrifice. If you do a study of of the subject of covenant throughout the scriptures, you'll find there is no covenant without a sacrifice. And the sacrifice signifies, among other things, the laying down of a life the pouring out of a life for the sake of the, of the relationship so when it says that uh, there will come a time when people will begin to behave in such a way that they seek to they will eventually destroy the everlasting covenant you see how serious and dangerous this would be now covenant the the purpose for covenant is to protect relationship god established his covenant relationship with israel then in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, he tells you what the covenant was meant to protect. He says, quote, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I brought you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, God tells Moses. Now, do you see what was God calling them for? He was calling them to be with him. I brought you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you'll obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me. I brought you out for myself. Now, not only did he want a relationship with them, but he wanted them to then carry that light to the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. They failed in that task, but God has not been assuaged from his original plan and purpose, which is to salvage the entire world. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we're all familiar with. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people, purchased by blood. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. A priest, the word priest means, among other things, a bridge builder. Uh, The priesthood of believers has to do with building the bridge between the kingdom of God and and the earth um, to salvage the world. And that's what, what Israel was called to do and what the church continues to be called to do covenant can only be ratified by sacrifice sacrifice is made by the laying down of a life the blood is the seal of the covenant Revelation 12 11 says they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death now are you beginning to catch on as I go through this that we we are we are being drained of strength by so many different issues in our life today. But remember our opening verse. But those who know their God shall be strong and do exploits, the King James Version says. Know their God, uh, the word know their Yada in in Hebrew Means to know by experience. This is not, with all due respect to good education. This is not knowledge by uh, study. It's not the knowledge that comes from uh, working really hard academically. Although, of course, God blesses that and uses it as a, as a, a means to help bring us into hopefully experiential relational knowledge. Sadly. Uh, I encounter people all the time who have s- supposedly uh, seminary educations or Bible college educations, and they've just got a head full of information, knowledge that puffs them up. Uh, it didn't bring them into deeper humility. It brought them into a, more of a a place of trying to figure God out and put him in a box. So those who know their God is referring to a kind of knowledge that comes from Union, which we'll talk more about in a moment. What does it say about people who know their God like that? Well, it says, they shall be strong. Now, this phrase, they shall be strong, in English doesn't portray nearly uh, as clearly the idea that the Holy Spirit intends us to get. In the original language, the word strong here, to be strong, it has a progressive quality to it. You seize hold of in order to become courageous. It has to do with repairing, fortifying, completing, or mending that which is broken. So those who know their God shall become mended and repaired and made complete and learn to be courageous and take hold of things and seize them in order that they might do. Now the King James Version adds the word exploits. They'll do exploits. The Hebrew doesn't, have any word beyond the word do. It's almost like a blank check. If you know God and you are taking hold of him so that he can take hold of you uh, or more to the point, he's taken hold of you so that you can learn to take hold of him because he chose us. We didn't choose him. Um, Then we then become people who have the power to, to do. To do what? Whatever we need to do. This word do in Hebrew means to accomplish, to advance, to appoint, to become, to bear up, to bestow, to bring forth, to be busy, to take charge of, to be industrious. I could go on farther, but I think you get the point. Now, this kind of people that are going to bring about the close of the age in Revelation chapter 22 verse 14 says, blessed are they who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. We see here a picture of a time of great international, political, moral, and personal evil that is described in Daniel chapter 11, which we opened with. Uh, this evil will seek to destroy the covenant by corrupting people with flatteries. The word flatteries there, spin. It, the spin doctor's. It will be a time when the very nature of reality will be challenged by a new tower of Babel, a one-world, secular, occult state system ruled by dark spirits in union with evil men and women. Yet in the face of all this, God will have a people who know him and who are strong and who will therefore be able to do whatever he commands. In the time that we've got together remaining, I want us to take a look at these three words, to know him, to be strong, and then to do. Now, another prophetic picture of the people of the close of the age is seen in Psalm 110, where uh, it, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. By the way, this verse is probably one of the more uh, quoted verses in the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's re- it's in the New Testament at least five times, so it, we need to understand it. The Lord shall send the rod of His strength out of Zion. What does that mean? Who is Zion? Zion is the people of God. Zion is not. Uh, uh, Zion is a symbolic picture of the entire body of Christ, the people of God. Uh, Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12 will give you the reference for that. The rod of God's strength, the rod of his authority and power. The word rod there is a scepter. So this has to do with the authority of God being manifested in the earth through his people. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 2 says. Then verse 3 your people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day of your power. Or a footnote would say, the day you gather your army. And then it describes the army, clothed in the beauty of holiness, birthed out from the womb of darkness into the morning. It's a picture of those who have come through the dark. They have come through the struggle of the dark. And been burst into the morning. Uh, and it, uh, the dew of youth, which the King James re- refers to there, is actually a, 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 a poetic picture of an army of young people. That doesn't mean older people aren't part of it, but it specifies an, a great army of young people. So, those of you with uh, children and uh, you're concerned about them, you can start praying that verse over them, that they'll be a part of that. I pray that for my children and my grandchildren. That they not just be saved, but that they be flaming lights for righteousness in their generation. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn, speaking of Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many nations he shall drink from the brook quickly in haste in, in order to complete his work. As a result of his conquest, he shall lift up his head in triumph. This is a picture of the return of the Lord and the conquest of evil and the vanquishing of uh, God's of enemies and the uh, establishment of the fullness of the earthly kingdom. Now this prophetic picture of God's plan and purpose for his people in the end of the age It's not a picture of defeat or of passive waiting in a corner somewhere for the rapture. It's a people who know God and are strong enough to do whatever he commands them to do in battle. This is a picture of a people who are in the world but not of the world. They are of earthly value because they are heavenly minded. They live on earth by borrowing the atmosphere of heaven. When they enter a situation, they are aware that the kingdom of God has entered it because they and the kingdom are intertwined. It's not boastful arrogance. On the contrary, people who understand this process of being broken and cleansed and then intertwining their life with the life of the vine so that he's the vine and we're the branches and without him we can do nothing. This, this, These people are not arrogant. They're free from egotism. They're free from self-centered, uh, self-serving motivations. They're full of joy because they're free from the burden of selfishness. And they're like children in their love for God, but like warriors in their hatred for evil. This is a wonderful vision of destiny. But how do we get there? It's great to look at the vision. But let's come down to where you and I live. We need the vision. Without a vision, we wander until we perish. But where do we go to begin to live out that vision? We've looked at the large prophetic picture in Psalm 110 and in our introduction from Daniel 11, which is valuable, but it's not of any use unless we individually follow its direction to reach the destination. Let's examine ourselves with regard to these three issues. Knowing God, receiving the strength that comes from knowing God, and then doing exploits. Let's look at knowing God. How much time do you spend with the Lord? Now, I'm not asking this with some kind of finger wagging in your face, like I'm some spiritual guru that's got to correct you. I have to fight to spend time with the Lord. One thing I have to fight is a voice in my head that says, well, you don't have to be alone with him. You're always with him. You have a lot to do. He knows that. Just pray as you go. Well, I believe you can pray as you go. I don't doubt that. The Bible says pray without ceasing, so obviously you can pray as you go. But in all my going and doing, even for God, quote, unquote. My strength is never renewed by that. It's only renewed by Him. So I have to purposefully plan to have time in His presence. And I don't mean just saying, Good morning, Lord, come go with me while I do things that are too important to uh, stop and be quiet and still before you. It is in His presence that He exchanges my weakness for His strength. And I'm telling you, I, 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 the things that are draining the life out of you every day, television, radio, newspapers, people, culture, the vexing things that I listed just very briefly from our opening time together, those things are not, uh, they, they, they gather inside your soul like barnacles. Barnacles. Remember in the tabernacle, where you know you go in and you go to the labor of washing. You wash off the the dust of the world, the flesh, and the devil before you go into the presence. And in the presence of the Lord, you are renewed. Second Corinthians chapter twelve verses nine and ten, uh, Paul says, "I sought the Lord three times to remove this infirmity from me," what he called his thorn in the flesh. But, he, but the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, the the way God's strength is made perfect in our weakness is that in our emptiness, God comes and fills us. So Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And Obviously, what he's referring to there is this exchanged life, where the power of God is manifested through us. I mean, we all know this; we all have experienced it. If you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, you know of the occasions when you have been empty and absolutely had nothing to give, but out of obedience, you obeyed. You know, you obeyed the Lord and and this power, this presence, this. Insight, this compassion that is beyond you came and began to carry you into the fulfillment of what you were called to do when you had no strength or desire to do it um, now, when Paul says that he rejoices in infirmities, you know he's not talking through his hat, he's not just being religious, he's got experience to back up what he's saying second corinthians one eight he says we want you all to know something of what we went through in Asia. At that time, we were completely overwhelmed, he says. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves, this is the end. Can you imagine what Paul must have been going through for him to say that? Second Corinthians seven five. When we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. You know, I I don't have any experience, anything close to what the apostle Paul had to deal with in Second Corinthians eleven. He says, you know, he lists beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and threats on his life and prison, and then he says, quote, in my travels I've been in constant danger from rivers and floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from pagans. I faced danger in the cities, danger in the desert, danger on the high seas. Danger from false Christians. I've known exhaustion, pain, long vigils, hunger and thirst, doing without meals, cold and lack clothing. Beside all this, the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches. And I I look at that and I think of the times when I have been stretched to what I thought was beyond my capacity. And uh, times of fear. I'll tell you I know this is so wimpy compared to what Paul just listed, but I think some of the most painful times in my life have been the times when I've had to stay up late, waiting for my kids to get in, uh, when they were first learning to drive and were being allowed to get out kind of on their own, and even after they were older, when they were in their early 20s, just... Vigils, long dark vigils when I knew something was wrong and I knew uh, things weren't up to par and my heart was thumping. And I'd, I'd, you know, how many times have I cleaned the whole house and straightened up the garage and cut the grass and trimmed the trees and painted the barn uh, just to, to burn up nervous energy when all the time I was just fearful, just fearful. You parents, any of you parents, know what I'm talking about it's in those moments of weakness and fear and pain that the holy spirit expects us to turn to him and do what i'm trying to describe in this time together and i'll make more sense of what that is in just a moment how do you do it how do you how do you exchange your weakness for his strength well paul says in 2 timothy chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 he says at my first answer when i was first brought before Nero. No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God not hold that to their charge. In spite of it all, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul's not saying this because he's Paul. Paul's saying this is the normal Christian life. But very few of us have much experience in it. Isaiah 41, verses 26 through 31, most of us could quote this. We we can quote these verses, but we don't know how to live them. Why, O Jacob, or why, O Clay, or put your name there, why, O whoever? Why do you say, my way and my lot in life is hidden from the Lord and my right is passed over without God regarding me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint or grow weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint and the weary. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Do you believe that? Do you believe God can increase your strength? Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look. (laughs) Who has created all this? He who brings out their hosts by number and calls them all by name through the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing or lacks anything. Even youths shall fail and become weary and young men shall feebly stumble and fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 27, verse 1, and then verse 13 and 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I would have faded had I not waited to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 9 says, Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. What a, Wait on the Lord. What does it mean? I mean, we've all heard pretty good explanations of it. You know, we wait on the Lord like a waiter waits on a table. Things like that but the hebrew word here is more beautiful than that it's actually the word for twining a piece of rope in with another piece of rope and it's sometimes translated uh, as hope the word wait is translated as hope various times in the in the tanakh so how does the word wait come out of the word entwined. Well, it means to to know God means to be so united with Him that you hold on to Him and place all your hope in Him. This word implies holding on tight, not in the sense of our holding on to God for dear life as if, if we let go we're going to fall into our death, but in the sense of refusing to give in to its opposite of doubt, accusation, or fear. Holding on to our conviction of God's character and God's faithfulness. You get this picture? Waiting on the Lord. This is the difficulty of translation. You know, uh, when, when when it finally became clear that there was going to be a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, what we call the Septuagint, Many, many rabbinical teachers wept with grief, not because they didn't want the Gentiles to have the word of God, but because they knew, they knew that in the translation there would be so much beauty lost. This is one of those examples. Now, the word wait here uh, implies hope, and also it implies strength. This is the idea of a, a, three, a, three cold, a threefold cord is not easily broken. And uh, Psalm 84, verse 5 through 7 says, Blessed is the one whose strength is in you, Lord, in whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, who passing through the valley of Baca, or the valley of tears, make it become a wellspring of pools to drink from. They are passing from strength to strength until everyone appears before God. This growth of strength comes through the passage of the valley of tears. Now, this is what Paul's talking about in, in Romans chapter 5 and what James is talking about in James chapter 1 when they both say, in their own words, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and temptations and testings, knowing that the trying of your faith develops endurance. Endurance, hope, all of this is related. And waiting on God means not just passively sitting by and hoping something good might happen, maybe, but it means wrapping yourself so much into him and him so entwined in your life that you and he are inseparable. You know, this is, uh, this is what it means to when Paul says, I know whom I have believed. He says, I've become totally entwined in the one that I first believed in. Now, it's not a matter of faith anymore. I know whom I have believed and become persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against whatever future the future may hold. Now, this word strength here, uh, Kazakh in Hebrew, to take hold of, to seize, to be courageous, to repair, to fortify. Now, that's that's the meaning of the word strength, to take hold of, to seize. It, it's very close-kin to waiting on the Lord. To take hold of and refuse to let go, producing strength from holding on. Now, with that in mind, Listen to Ephesians 3, verse 12. In union with him. Now, now think about that. The in, in, entwined together. In union with him because of his faithfulness, not ours. We can have boldness and confidence to approach God. So I ask you not to be discouraged by the troubles I'm enduring on your behalf. I pray that God will be given, that that, that God will uh give you strength to grasp the breadth the length the depth the height of messiah's love see how these words all work together that god will give you strength uh, to grasp now they who know their god shall be strong and they will do what with that strength they will they will do And I told you in Hebrew, there's no word following do there. But uh, the word that's translated like that is in other parts of of the scripture. It's translated to accomplish, to advance, to appoint, to become, to bear up under, to bestow, to bring forth, to be busy, to take charge, to be industrious, to confront. Now. All of this is to say one thing in our time together that I hope you get out of all of this, and that is we are facing the the most demanding time of our life. I'm 55 years old. I have never had to face what we're facing uh, in this nation now. It's not nearly as terrible as my parents' and grandparents' generation had to face, but the fact is, it doesn't do any good for me to compare myself with other people. I've got to, to deal with what I've got to deal with in my generation. And I feel sometimes exhausted by it. I mean, uh, that's no news. You do too. I, I'm sure you're exhausted by it. Um, uh, and some of you might say, well, just uh, you know, turn the bad news off, and don't pay any attention to it. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just not made that way. Uh, I, I'm not one who can just play like everything's okay. I don't think whistling in the dark and playing like everything's okay and ignoring evil is the way to confront evil. Nor is it right to get so preoccupied with what the evil is doing that I become evil myself by yelling, screaming, ranting, raving, and becoming bitter and angry and uh, uh, fruitless but loud. A lot of heat, no light. So to be in the presence of the Lord, you know, Habakkuk did not ignore the coming of the Babylonians. He went up into his tower and he saw them coming. Then he turned to the Lord and he he received from the Lord the word of the Lord, which we know now as the book of Habakkuk. And in that in that prophetic word he received from God, though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine and the produce of the olive fail and the crops yield no fruit and the ox be cut off from the stall. If economic tragedy is everywhere and even worse, if there's invading armies, yet will I rejoice in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And what is strength? It is the power to stand and the power to produce life in the face of all those dark things I just mentioned. So, what shall we do? How shall we accomplish these things? Ephesians 3 uh, 12, which I've already mentioned in union with him through his faithfulness we have boldness and confidence to approach God and we ask uh, that, that we would not be discouraged by the troubles that we're enduring but that we pray that God will give us strength to grasp the breadth, the length, the depth, the height to know the love of Messiah which surpasses mere human comprehension so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God then we go out in that power. See, this is the power of the vine. And we accomplish. We accomplish what? We advance what? We appoint what? We become what? We bear or up and carry what? We bestow. We bring forth. We produce. We occupy. We confront. We wage war. We rule. We rescue. In whatever way we find to do that, See, out of this intimacy with God, we grasp Him with all we know how, knowing that it is He who is grasping us. And we wait, we intertwine with Him until His life and ours are inseparable. This strong union in which He is our strength and He flows through our weakness, and He produces the energy out of which flows. Whatever it is he has for us to do, what Paul refers to in Colossians as "good works that were predestined and preordained that we should fulfill," that would be a, this is a study in itself. The divine flow of energy that is referred to over and over in Paul's writing, but this is this is abiding in the vine. This is the practice of the presence. This is the anointing. So Paul closes this thought with the words that we all know so well. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even imagine according to the power that is at work within us to him be glory and honor forever. How do you nurture this? i I know this is this is simplistic, maybe uh, maybe it's uh, maybe it's too childlike. That's why we miss it. We want profound deep things, but you know uh, I'd like to be able to learn to walk in the basics before I try to start being profound. To love God, He has shown thee O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy. To walk purely or humbly with your God. Uh, I'm still trying to work on that. If I can get that down, I'll change the world. I'll sure change my world. So, what are you doing to nurture this in your life? I mean, how how do you how do you spend time with the Lord? <clears throat> one one of my one of my guys here, who's a a Marine, and he loves God with all of his heart. But his very nature is just, he just can't, if he sits still, he's going to go sound asleep, and he knows it. So he needs to get up and walk to pray. That's fine. When we say wait on God, it doesn't mean you got to be in a cloister somewhere or embalm yourself in spiritual atmospheres that uh, would put most people to sleep. It means that you do whatever you have to do to unite your life with his life and his life with yours. I've reached a point now in my walk with the Lord after seeking his face and walking with him for 40 years, over 40 years now. There's nothing in my life that he's not directly involved in. Uh, I think about that that silly old song that came out a few years ago oh it's true i am happy to be stuck with you <laughs> i'm happy to be stuck with him i'm happy for him to be stuck with me and the the life of the vine flows through the uh the branches and uh, my weakness my emptiness my tiredness uh has become a place where uh, I'm passing through the Valley of Baca, the Valley of Tears, the Valley of Emptiness, and uh, it becomes filled, the, the pools begin to fill as I walk with the Lord through that Valley of, of Difficulty. And it, what was, what was a, a, a disaster becomes a source of ministry, a source of life. So what are you going through right now? I get letters from so many of you. Mary and I pray over every one of them. We never take them lightly. Some of you are facing tremendous battles in your business and your finances. Some of you are facing huge struggles in your marriage. Some of you are living in parts of the country where the demonic is so ensconced that even in your own home you have a difficult time Uh, just being at rest and peace because there's so little Christian influence in your area that you have to just stand in faith uh, even in your own home. Some of you are completely bereft of fellowship. You live uh, isolated from uh, the closest fellowship to you is 20, 30 miles. Uh, Some of you are going through battles with your children. Some of you are fighting physical battles. Some of you are Uh, fighting emotional and mental or sexual battles. Whatever the battle is, take that weakness into the presence of the Lord. Stop. Be still. Unless you're like the one I just talked about who can't be still, then go walk around a tree. Go out in the woods and walk. Whatever you've got to do. But put yourself on purpose into the presence of the Lord. Begin to listen to him. You see, knowing God means listening to his voice. My sheep, John 10, my sheep know my voice, and another they will not follow. My sheep know my voice. Uh, We read from Exodus chapter 6, if you will obey my voice... And keep my covenant. Then you will be my own special treasure. It's obeying his voice. Doing what you hear him say the best you know how. Now, if you say you can't hear him, then why don't you talk to him about that? That becomes the focal point. That becomes the issue that you need to pray about. That becomes the issue you need to start writing in your journal about. But I promise you, you're hearing his voice much more clearly than you think you are. If you just give yourself a few minutes to consider that, you'll know it's true. Now, I have two goals in this little simple message today. The first one is for you to be comforted and encouraged and strengthened. Strengthened in your uh, union with Christ, strengthened in your knowledge that he is not just holding on to you, he's weaving his life into the warp and woof of your life so that, that you you can't tell where he stops and you start and where you stop and he starts. Um, so that eventually Paul says, now Paul said it, I didn't say it, he says eventually, if you keep Living this way, you will reach a point where you will know the height, the depth, the breadth, the length, to know the love of God that surpasses human ability to comprehend in order that you might eventually become filled with the fullness of God. This is beyond even the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes and fills us. Uh, But his purpose in filling us is to bring us to this point that I'm talking about now. Well, the night I was filled with the Spirit, I I got the worst migraine headache of my life. And I instinctively knew why. Uh, I'd had migraine headaches since I was five years old. Uh, When I was about six, I had one that was so bad I tore a corduroy pillow open with my bare hands from the pain. Uh, The night I was filled with the Spirit, I I got home, and by the time I got home, I had the most destructive uh, pain uh, just roaring inside of my head. And I knew in my spirit what it was. It was the clash of two kingdoms. It It was the Holy Spirit coming and confronting the bitterness, the impurity, the anger the unforgiveness, the lust, the confusion, the fear, the arrogance, the pride that uh, was uh, so much uh, who I was. So I thought you were Christian. How could you have all that in you? Well, Jesus saved me by grace. And when I got saved, uh, legally, all things become new. But that doesn't mean that experientially it's become new. There's a whole whole lot of stuff in you that he's still working on. And the Holy Spirit comes, not because we're clean. He comes to cleanse us. He comes to purge us. Uh, he comes to, to, to be the purging, cleansing fire of sanctification. So that he who has begun a good work in us will eventually finish it. He's begun it. He'll finish it. But you know what God's goal, His ultimate purpose, His ultimate plan for you and me is what I've just mentioned, that we would actually eventually know the love of Christ so fully that we become filled with all the fullness of God. Then we become unstoppable. We become unkillable. We are not able to be intimidated. We're, we're not. We won't compromise. It's not even a We wouldn't even consider compromise. Uh, we become then people who can fulfill that vision of Psalm one hundred and ten that we referred to a little while back. We become the people uh, who know their God and do exploits. We become people who make of ourselves a free will offering on the altar of God in the day God gathers his army. We are burst out of the darkness into the out of the womb of darkness into the brightness of the morning. We are clothed in the beauty of holiness and we have the dew of youth because see they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I'm so ashamed of myself sometimes. I think about my spiritual father and my spiritual mother, Derek Prince and Leanne Payne. Both of them, in their elderly years, traveling the world. And here I am, 20, 30 years their junior And there's days when I don't want to leave my desk. I don't want to leave my big chair in there. I don't want to leave my front porch. I don't want to leave my yard. But some people think waiting on the Lord means passivity. No, I get passive when I don't wait on the Lord. When I wait on the Lord, I begin to get filled with strength and vision, and I want to go. So, know the Lord, draw near to Him, be strong, do exploits. Find out what those are for you and then do them.